Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan, or occasional observer, we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. Today's guest stands in a league all her own. From age 14, she found pleasure and strength in pushing herself to the limit in a multidisciplinary sport, and from that point experienced a progressively ascendant trajectory in her career, eventually landing as one of the greatest athletes to ever compete in the sport of triathlon. She won the European U23 Championship in 2001, and from that moment she continued to amass accolades and improve as a triathlete. She won the Olympic distance world title in 2002 and eventually progressed into longer distance Ironman races. Her first Ironman victory came in 2012 in Arizona. And only a few months after that, she capped off an incredible racing career and year by winning Ironman's 70.3 world championship and the Ironman world championship in only five weeks apart, becoming only the second human being and first woman to complete the double by winning both the world championships in the same year. She continued to accumulate wins after this and uh, completed her career in 2018, solidifying herself as a future Hall of Fame triathlete. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with great honor and pleasure that I welcome today professional triathlete, Leanda Cave. Leanda, thanks for coming on the show and uh, being with us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. So you got a, an interesting start uh, because you were initially born in England, correct? And then moved to Australia where it really kind of started into some of your athletic endeavors initially. Is that right? My parents dragged me over to Australia with my two siblings, my sister, she's two years older than me, and my brother, he's two years younger than me. And we had an interesting childhood on the road for most of it, school to school and sport. I wouldn't say played a huge part of that, but it was definitely something we continued to do throughout our childhood as we went around all these different schools. Sport was always a big priority at a lot of the schools we went to, and it kind of just evolved that way we got into like swimming and surf lifesaving and cross-country running and all that sort of stuff along the way and that's just for me I kept doing it my brother and sister not so much I guess like that kind of young exposure to sport that gave me the taste for the competitor in me what was it about these kind of endurance sports swimming and running and surf lifeguarding or 
So it's life-saving. Life-saving. Yeah. Life, it is lifeguarding over here, but life-saving okay. in Australia. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So what was it about those sports that attracted you initially early on? Or was that something your parents prompted as opposed to doing something more like soccer or football or something like that? Because we traveled so much, we weren't really able to get into teams and be like a team player, if you like. So to pursue a sport, it had to be like an individual sport, which we could do no matter where we were or who we were with, right? It wasn't my parents' goal either to get us into sport so much as it was just as a means to keep us active and in the right crowd and in Australia in particular with it being a country surrounded by water. That's kind of the swimming, surf, life-saving side just as a, a means so we don't uh, run into trouble and we know how to save ourselves should we be in a situation swimming in the, in the ocean, for example. Those sorts of things are... are what my parents were looking at, it wasn't so much, um, oh, we're going to get our kids into sports so they can be professional athletes. It was nothing like that. Yeah. It was all just, and, and they pushed us to an extent, like I'd say most parents, but I want to say for the most part, I wasn't really the one who needed pushing. Like I was totally self-motivated. My brother and sister needed a little bit more of a nudge to get out the door, but I was always the competitor. I was the one who decided to go to a workout. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I think it's an, an innate uh, characteristic. Do you remember at, at a young age always being that way or is it something developed? Because I do think it's, it's a unique uh, quality that not everyone possesses. And I think it's hard to develop. Do you remember when you started noticing that about yourself compared to your siblings? Yeah, I mean, look, I was always going for the blue ribbon. <laughs> and yeah. I remember it was always about winning for me and at, at school events like the the track meets at school and and this was from a super young age i always wanted to bring home the blue ribbon i was i would get the red one which was second or the green which was third every now and then it wouldn't have the same satisfaction as the blue i was so i was definitely like a competitor that way sport for me wasn't so much about competition i think it was what led me to probably pursuing sport more seriously was just the fact that at school, I wasn't a very social kid. I was uh, very shy and timid and I really didn't have a lot of friends and sport was my currency to get through, <laughs> through school, if you like. It was the one yeah. thing that I could do and I could do it well and it spoke for itself and gave me what I want to say would be the confidence as a child where a lot of other kids got confidence through popularity, through intellect or whatever. For me, it was sport. Even though I was a smart kid, I just needed sport to speak for me because I, I wasn't able to speak a lot like on my own. Yeah. And with that, did you end up feeling like once you got to that point where that sport became part of it, did that change for you where you really found a crowd or a group of people that did the same sort of sport or activities that you found to like? Or were, were you always kind of just an individual sport type of person that just focused on your athletics? Yeah, I definitely found my crowd, my people, <laughs> those like-minded people in sport who took it a little more seriously than just going out for fun. They were the crowd that I would end up with and I would be mostly respected by and, and not a bad crowd to end up with, I would say. They're actually the people I, I found I could jam with, like, more personally as well, like we kind of understood each other a lot more. And honestly, that a lot of the times we were all introverts who now, I mean, I talk for fun, but back then I didn't talk at all. But today I'm a different person because of what confidence and self-esteem I well, developed through competitive sport. Tell us about a little bit when you first got into triathlon and how that came about. 
So triathlon was something that I was kind of introduced to by friends when I was a kid. I was actually just swimming at the time and cross-country running in the winter where I grew up at school in Cairns in North Queensland, Australia, and similar weather actually to Miami, like super hot in the summer, mild in the winter, but our pools weren't heated. So as a swimmer, I couldn't really swim. The pools were mostly shut down. So I took to cross-country running and then I kind of weaved into that the cycling because I would end up cycling to school because it was faster than the bus and I hated being on the bus. <laughs> so it was kind of like this organic process where triathlon was introduced to me as like there was this Iron Kid series. I think I was maybe like 13 or 14 and I won that. And then we had a, these were just short, short events, right? Like super, super sprint. And then yeah. the schools had, this is back then in like the early 90s, they actually had a school triathlon event where um, you could do the individual or a team. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so far. Like it was a sprint distance at the time. I thought it was way too far for me to do it on my own. My sister did it on her own, but I ended up doing a team event with um, three other girls. Well, one of them pulled out and I ended up doing the swim and run and this other girl did the bike and then my sister did the whole thing and I'm like, oh my gosh, I could do the whole thing. So that's kind of like when I realized that, oh, maybe I've got some talent in triathlon. But again, I was like a kid of all sorts of endurance sports. I was, like I said earlier, I was doing triathlon, I was doing swimming, I was doing surf life-saving, cross-country running, uh, anything that I could do to find, I was always doing it just to be outdoors. Was there something about endurance sports, aside from, because there's other sports that are a little bit more solo sports that are not teams, such as, you know, tennis or golf. And obviously tennis is down, big down uh, in Australia. What was it about endurance sports in particular that you really liked? I lacked agility. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know me, Mike, I'm tall. I have long limbs. It's definitely harder coordination wise to do things when you're like long and lean. And I didn't have a lot of agility. So my parents they tried to get us into everything, right? Like they would never leave a sport out that they didn't want us to try. So we did do this sport in Australia called netball, which was a school sport. So we kind of picked that up everywhere. I wasn't big into that. My sister took that up a little different to like group or team sports where, you know, you have to be in the team for a while. Like you could just join a netball club anywhere. Um, so my mom and my sister really enjoyed their netball and I wasn't into netball. My mom also got us into um, gymnastics and I, I was terrible. Like my legs and arms were flying everywhere. And then they, they got us into tennis at one point. I realized pretty early on that I hadn't got any real ability at tennis um, and squash. That was another sport. So, you know, they really, really tried to help us find our feet in terms of what we were good at. And it was just more, like I said, organic. The fact that I got into triathlon the way I did just because I was a natural swimmer. I wouldn't say a natural runner, but I was definitely more like geared towards riding a bike just because of my long limbs than um, a lot of people. So yeah, eventually like triathlon just happened to be the sport for me. Yeah. And the combination of all three of those you enjoyed together as opposed to doing them separately. No, I actually enjoyed every one of them separately. I was, I was on the cross-country team. I it would take me to places. Um, it's the first time I got on a plane, like as a kid after, you know, we migrated from the UK to Australia. The first time I flew on a plane was to go to a cross-country meet. And it was like the nationals. So that was like super exciting. I realized like doing sport well, I could travel and see things. And then 
with swimming. It was like I really enjoyed the swimming because I, I that was actually my my first sport I felt really good at and competitive at, and I never really did cycling competitively till later. But I, I would say I competed in all three sports at some point separately, as opposed to just doing it in triathlon. And and would you say that swimming of the three is probably your strongest? Mm, I, I wouldn't say so. Actually, I would say I'm kind of not amazing at anything, but not terrible either. So I'm kind okay. of like, I'm on the upper echelon of all of them. You know, the reason I didn't pursue swimming because I could never like get to that level where I needed to be. And the yeah. reason I didn't pursue running, same thing. Cycling, I did actually get asked to be on a professional team. Um, but when I, I did a few professional bike races and soon realized that this was a sport that I was never going to make a living doing, especially as a female. So um, I didn't really pursue that. And triathlon, first professional race I did as a triathlete, I think I won like $2,500 in Australia. And it was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I can do all right at this. I can earn some money. Yeah. <laughs> and back then, that was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, no joke. From the age of 14, when you do your first race, what is the transition point or what does the kind of trajectory look like, look like between – that first race and you first start racing at a you know higher more kind of almost professional level back then it was i mean i look back at photos i was on like a my first triathlon was on a mountain bike and then i was on a steel by yankee frame um and then i went to aluminum so i guess technology wise like that evolved quite a lot i remember back then like I didn't even know what an Ironman was. I just saw the Ironman logo around everywhere where I was doing triathlon or training for triathlon. You know, people would stick it on the road or whatever and then you'd see it's tattooed on someone's arm or whatever. I was like, I always was curious what that was, but I never really understood what it was. And as I became more involved in the sport, like I, I went for the Olympic distance, hopeful to be an Olympian one day. But then I was like, oh, there's also this Ironman distance, which was also on TV. And I realized that that's also a really big deal. And I pursued the Olympic distance for a long time until I, you know, I wouldn't say I got tired of the politics more than anything and realized, you know, to get to the Olympics, it's more than just being like the best athlete in the country. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through and um, just you have to have luck on your side as well. Like yeah. for me, it was just unlucky, unlucky circumstances that, you know, happened where I didn't get selected for teams. So, you know, I'm in came into the scene or I'd say like half Ironman first came into the scene as just something that I could do. Didn't have to represent a country. I could just do it. I had a strong swim. I had a strong bike. My run sometimes was always the, the problem, the issue with the longer distance racing, but eventually I managed to, to pull that together and, you know, onwards to the Ironman, just that progression onto that distance eventually as well. Yeah. There's a lot in that. that I kind of want to pack it as well, but I think that, <laughs> First of all, you know, you talk about two main different types of, of racing. Explain a little bit to those who may not be familiar with triathlon, what the difference is between Olympic style racing and what that distance is, and then compare that and contrast that to not only just the obvious differences in terms of the distances, but also the tactics and the rules from that, the Olympic style racing to the Ironman racing that people see on TV. What, what are the biggest differences? So the Olympic distance is the distance that you'll see at the Olympic Games. It's a 1,500-meter swim. It's a 40-kilometer bike and a 10K run. And that's drafting, draft legal, if you like. So uh, the equipment is essentially a road bike, and you can sit behind somebody on the road bike and get a draft. And the draft actually saves you, I mean, in a headwind, 
30, 40% if it's a really strong headwind. Uh, so it's more economical if you're drafting behind somebody on the bike than if you're leading. So there's also a sport which is more geared towards someone who has a strong run background or strong running ability because with the swim being so, I wouldn't say it's short, but in a, it's, it's where a lot of girls or guys, they come out together, they ride together on the bike because they're drafting in a group and it come, becomes a running race. So essentially athletes who do really well in the Olympic distance are athletes who, who come from a strong running background or have a strong running ability. Um, so I was actually pretty good in the end at the Olympic distance. I did win a world title in that distance. But it took years to get there. I see a pretty good winning world title. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but I had to evolve as an athlete. I changed a lot of my you know, form running, which is how I evolved. Um, but anyway, going back to your earlier question. So that's the Olympic distance. And then the 70.3 or the half Ironman distance, that is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike, and a 13.1-mile run. And that is non-drafting, meaning... If you're on a bike, you cannot sit directly behind someone, someone else to get an aerodynamic advantage. So it's a lot fairer in the way that if you're a strong cyclist, you can actually benefit from that as opposed to an Olympic distance. If you're a strong cyclist, someone can draft off you and you really can't lose the pack or have any gains. And the equipment is different. So as opposed to Olympic distance in the 70.3 and also Ironman, by the way, you're riding on what we call a time trial bike so you're in your aero position aerodynamics play a huge part in the bike because you're trying to like reduce wind resistance so you're not getting as much wind hitting your body so you're trying to be much smaller and more streamlined if you like on the bike so the equipment is is quite different and the run you know it's whatever you can pull off in at some point the pace of the 70.3 is normally or typically a little slower than what you would go for an Olympic distance. So you wouldn't go as hard as you would do for Olympic distance. And one distance up from that is um, double the 70.3 distance, which is what they call the Ironman distance. And exactly like it is, 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile uh, bike, and a 26.2-mile run. I, get, I was about to do kilometers. I was always yeah. switching back and forth. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. And I, I cannot do that, so... <laughs> and again, like same bike as the, the 70.3. I would say the thing that was a lot different in Ironman, a little different um, than Olympic with the half, but I, I would say what plays more of an important role in Ironman is nutrition. That took me a long time to learn. With the 70.3, you can get away with it a little more, but with Ironman, I mean, you're essentially having breakfast, lunch, and dinner on while you're racing. So you really, really got to uh, understand what your body can absorb or digest while your heart rate is at race pace. So, uh, and that gets difficult. And as you get older, it gets harder. That was a great description of all of those from a different way. And I think that a couple of the things I want to dive into is, is one, you know, obviously the paces are going to be different. How do you approach each different race venue or distance or modality from a tactical standpoint, other than just pace, do you change your mentality of how you're going to approach it, when you're going to attack or how you attack? What is your approach when you go into a race at each different type? I would say prior to even that, I would select races which were playing to my strengths. So I was an athlete who could climb really well I was because I was light and, and lean. I was an athlete who could race really well in the heat. 
So I would look for races which kind of lent themselves to those strengths. And so that, I guess tactically then I would, you know, if it was a hilly bike, I would really uh, exploit my strengths on the bike um, and try and have a big enough lead off the bike so I could pull off a solid run on tired legs and still do really well in the race. And the same thing with the heat. I, I mean, I, I was lucky I grew up in Australia, in North Queensland, which was very hot and very humid. And I guess at that early age, like your body just adapts a lot quicker as an adult. And I was able to do those races much easier than, or, I mean, it's always hard, but like I was able to handle the conditions a lot easier than my competition in most circumstances. Yeah, I think that's a, a point to be made. I mean, I, I think the heat really plays a huge factor, not only in triathlon, but even just a standard running race, whether it's half marathon, a marathon. Um, and it's something that I personally have experienced. You know, I grew up in Colorado, which is dry and is not very hot. And then I moved to the South and it's night and day comparing your run pace and how you feel, just your exertion. You know, was that something, like you said, did you ever notice a difference? But, or was that something like you said, where you just kind of, you realize later on in life that, oh wait, this is not as hard for me as it is for others. I mean, I would just see my competition or just hear their comments and they'd be like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. And I, or do you remember how, how hot was it on the course out there? And I was like, I didn't really register, you know, like wow. those things didn't go through my mind. Yeah. But I have to say, like, I was so used to racing in the heat. I never knew what racing in the cold was or in cool climate until like I came to the UK where I ended up starting my professional career. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so much easier, <laughs> you know? But at the same time, like whenever I raced in the heat, I didn't really notice how hot it was. And when you say it's easier, you know, for you, what are the things that you feel when you're racing that are noticeably easier in terms of your exertion? Yeah, just perceived effort. I was, I'd be running much faster and, and just looking at my, my watch going, oh, I'm actually running really fast and it doesn't feel as hard, right? So just things like that, it, yeah. Go for longer, like my stamina would be much longer in cooler climates versus hotter climates as well. Yeah, so those are just a couple of the things that I really remember being big differences between racing in the cool climate versus the, the heat. Yeah, and then you, you know, mentioned I think nutrition is obviously a big deal and that changes uh, based on the duration of the race. Give us an idea too in terms of, and you can kind of relate nutrition to this because obviously the longer you're racing, the more calories you're burning, the more fuel you require give us an idea of what the time frame looks like how many hours you're racing for a, an olympic distance a half ironman and a full ironman and then how that nutrition like what you change based on each one yeah that's actually a really good question so the olympic distance is no more well roughly two hours typically slightly shy of two hours for the women and roughly like 140 145 for the men this is a professional level and You'd get by on maybe a gel, maybe some sports drink, but for the most part, you could, you could most athletes could manage the distance without taking in any nutrition, and that often happens. They also take something like on their bike, like Coke or something with some caffeine, just to like keep themselves perked up. Mm -hmm. um, so that's typically like an Olympic distance. Uh, a half Ironman, roughly like four to four and a half hours for a professional female, three thirty, three forty-five for a professional male. And that's when, you know, a bit more nutrition planning comes into play. So I would typically try to consume around 150 calories per hour. And they'd be in the form of sports gels and some chews like Power Bar Blast or Cliff Chews or something like that. 
and that would be broken up. So I wouldn't all be all in one go taking those calories. I would split them up periodic, periodically on the bike and, and also on the run. But most of the calories I would consume on the bike, it's just like easier to digest when you're biking than when you're running because your heart rate's definitely not as high biking as it is running. And then for the Ironman, again, similar nutrition plan, but a little bit more because you're operating at a lesser intensity and you're actually, it's a lot easier for your gut to metabolize calories when you're not operating at such a high intensity. So, and in a full Ironman, I would try to hit around 200 calories per hour. Definitely a lot more electrolytes in there, salt tablets, things like that, because you sweat so much, especially in the heat, just to supplement some of the, the electrolyte loss. And yeah, again, in the form of, sports drinks, gels. I could never eat any solids. That's what personally I found. Some athletes can, but for me, whenever I tried to eat a solid, it just, it, I, it wouldn't sit well in my stomach and it would make me sick. So yeah. I just had to stick with sports gels mostly. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the more nuanced aspects of racing is really finding whatever that unique compilation of calories works for you. Cause everyone's a little bit different in that. I mean, I, I saw people, like you said, eat tons of bars and they were looking good. And I was the same way. I mean, you sometimes just feel awful. Did you have a nutritionist or was that something that just kind of you had to experiment with to find out what worked for you? You know, I, uh, at the beginning, no, I didn't have a nutritionist. At the beginning, I just thought I could bang out like a Ironman the same pace as I would Olympic and a half, but I, I learned very early on I couldn't. So by the way, it's, a, it's roughly a nine hour event for women, maybe eight hour for men. So I, I, had a few years where I just could not figure out nutrition and I had some pretty bad advice early on. So I did get a nutritionist eventually and that's when I really started to figure it out. He told me exactly what I should be taking, when I should be taking it and how much I should take. And so that for me really, really helped just establish my nutrition plan. And it differs. Every athlete's different. Every Some athletes can't tolerate some sugars, whereas other athletes can and like we just mentioned solid food, some athletes can take solids, whereas other athletes like myself couldn't. Yeah. Well, that's a really good kind of synopsis of all that. And I think it's really interesting to hear the contrast uh, between the different race styles. Going back to a little bit of your earlier career when you were racing the Olympic distance and that Olympic style, you know, you became the European U23 champion in 2001. And then next year, from what I was kind of reading is that, was that your, your competition at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, that was one of your bigger races or more memorable races in your career. Is that right? Yeah, the Commonwealth Games is not really so well known over here in the US. But yeah, that was, it was special for many reasons. It did help that I won a silver medal, but also my family, when they migrated to Australia, they'd actually never been back to the UK until I actually competed in the Commonwealth Games. So that was the first time they had, my family being, my parents had come back to the UK. They had been back in 20 years. So I flew them over to watch me race. My sister was there. My brother was there. So everyone was there to watch me race in the Commonwealth Games. And I had a really strong performance and came second. It made it really worthwhile and they were super happy. And I remember my mom as I crossed the finish line, she's like, oh, I never thought you'd be this good. I mean, she meant it in a good way, yeah. but she's kind of like me. I would say something stupid like that and not think that she could sound not so nice. It, it was super memorable because that same year I, I'd won, I think, the world champs in Cancun. And I had nobody there, like no family. I had my teammates, my coach, but not even like friends there watching. It was just like just another race, you know. And 
So that was my, my first World Champs and then second World Champs, which was the ITU long distance. Again, nobody there. My third one, that was even worse. <laughs> I literally remember packing my bike in the car park after the race and I just won the World Champs at the 70.3 distance and it was just like, you know, no one there. Yeah, but then at the Ironman World Champs, my sister flew over, my brother flew over and they were there to watch and that was really cool. So that felt a little again, a little more special. And again, one of my, my biggest career accomplishments to date, just because I, I never knew how hard that distance was. I thought I would be able to get it down, but it took me so long to, to figure it out and to finally win it. And you, you were referring to the, the Ironman distance, is that right? Yes, exactly. When was the first Ironman race that you competed in? And then how, how long did it take before in 2012 where you finally you know, won the world championships? <laughs> The Ironman World Championships was the first Ironman I ever did, the one in 2007, I believe it was. Okay. Yeah, which was a huge shock because at that point I hadn't even run a marathon. I don't even think my longest ride was longer than 60 miles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, wait a second. You had not run a marathon or, or that distance and hadn't even ridden past 60 miles and your, no. your, first, your first approach was the World Championships? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, do you remember your time in that race, the first one? I think it was like 9.18 or something. That's still absolutely insane. Or maybe 9.23. I don't know, something in that range, that ballpark. It wasn't terrible, um, but I can tell you that my first marathon was was hell. It was awful. It was, I think I cried every step of the way. It was so brutal. Yeah. Yeah, no doubts. I think approaching a marathon without having done 2.4 miles swim and 112 miles on the bike it's always going to be hard. And then doing it when you haven't done it yet to date, that's pretty impressive. Let alone, I think the perspective, many people may not understand this, but doing that the first time and finishing a time around nine hours and 15, 20, 25 minutes, whatever, that is absolutely remarkable. There are people who go out and run it their first time they've trained and run those things and can't get under 12 hours. That's just, that's remarkable. Wow. So from that time, what did you learn from that in terms of one, the distance to the running and how did you change your approach to training to, to then go on to start to improve at that distance? I guess I started training for the distance. That kind of helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got myself a coach who knew it well, had an athlete racing well in Ironman distance. And I mean, I knew what I needed to do. I needed to become a better runner over long distance. I, I managed to be, become a good runner over the 10K with the Olympic distance. And that's how I won my first world title. And then I realized that I couldn't run a marathon and I needed somebody to coach me to do that. I got a coach, Siri Lindley, who was coaching Marinda Carfrey and I'd seen Marinda do some, have some great results. And I was like, okay, this is probably the best thing for me is just to go with a coach who seems to know what she's doing with an athlete who has some background in like long distance racing. So actually, I don't even know if Marina was racing Ironman at the time, but I know she was dominating the 70.3 distance, which is why that felt like a good fit for me. Yeah, and I think that that whole sort of evolution between you said 2007 was your first time you did the Ironman full distance, and then it was really about a five-year process. That's still a remarkably short time frame when you look at the level at which you're competing against people like Miranda Carfrey, who was at the top of the game during that time as well. And so do you think that at some point during that time frame or even before, when did you realize that triathlon was going to be how you, you know, made your career during that time in your life? 
Oh, I didn't know. If you had asked me as a like 13 or 14 year old if I was ever going to be like winning anything, I would have probably said no. But I wasn't ever like going to sit and you know overthink it and talk myself out of trying because you know when you're young, you just your world's your oyster. You just go for anything. You shoot for the stars and just end up somewhere. Halfway is sometimes pretty good, but yeah, I had big goals. I wanted to to be at the top and. For me, I also just knew I could win Kona. Like it was just, I knew I had a huge engine. I could just go and go and go. I just needed to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And it was, it was a huge puzzle for me. And I know you say you don't think that timeline was very long, but for me, it felt like an eternity because I didn't have the best results on the way. I, I came third the year before I won, but up to that point, I was like, maybe the best I'd come to that point was the, the first time I ever raced, maybe like seventh or eighth, never really like good enough. And I was like, this is just impossible. <laughs> but I never stopped trying. I never stopped trying to figure it out. And I guess that's what you keep doing. You keep trying. Okay, that didn't work this year. Let's go back and try something else the next year. And eventually, like I found my recipe. Yeah, you certainly did. And I think your 2012 is obviously evidence of that. And it was probably one of the, your one of your bigger years in your career if you looked at it. But from what I read, it sounds like it started off a little bit slow. You had a, a pretty bad fall and, and broke some ribs. Is that right? Back kind of starting that year? I remember I had a really bad back injury where I couldn't even walk at one point. I remember that being 4th of July because I, I remember the photo. I was sitting on my the roof of my house in a paddle pool and had friends staying over and we're celebrating watching fireworks on the, my roof. And I'm taped from head to toe in the spider tech, just yeah. trying to stay in one piece. So that's what I remember about the early on in 2012. I mean, I was fit up to that point. I was racing and training really well up to the point I got injured, but the injury seemed to last for a really long time. And I never knew what was going on or, how it happened. So I was just nursing this injury and that was just preoccupying my mind. And once I got through the injury, I decided to to go to Boulder, Colorado to train. And I thought I'd be training with a group there, but it turned out like it's not such a friendly group training environment. And I ended up doing a lot of it on my own. And I was just enjoying this like new place. I'd never been to Colorado before, the mountains, the scenery, the road. It was just like mind-blowingly beautiful and I was just like training for fun for the first time in a long time not training for the to get results I was just training for fun and again I hadn't really considered being a world champion at, at that point in my year because of my injury and a lot of other things so when I finally went over to the 70.3 worlds in Las Vegas Again, not thinking I was good enough to win, but I just like I got out the swim and I passed a bunch of girls early on on the bike and I thought I was chasing somebody who I wasn't and I come off the bike with this huge lead and that was like kind of bizarre. I was like, oh my gosh. And then Kona comes along and again, I'm, I, I'm in this extraordinary shape, which I never really realized up until 70.3 Worlds, and everything just fell into place. 70.3 Worlds, Las Vegas, you won. That was eventful, obviously, because you won the World Championship. So, yeah. so now you, you come to Kona, and, and this is only five weeks later. So you've already won the World Championship. 
Yeah. Five weeks later, which is after having won a pretty grueling race at 70.3 distance, not a whole ton of recovery time, but again, you're with professional triathletes. You guys are really so well tuned up in terms of your, like you said, you got big engines, you guys are well tuned up. And I think that as long as you recover the right way, you know, it's feasible to do this and clearly it is for you, but take us back to this. What are you thinking? What are you feeling standing on the beach in Hawaii before you jump in the, in the swim and take us through each discipline, the swim, the transition, the bike. What does it feel like? What are your legs? What are your lungs like? How's your heart feeling? What are your, what's your mentality? Give us a little bit of insight as to each part of those. And then especially kind of when you get towards the end of this and you cross the finish line, realizing what you've just done. Yeah. So I, I'm going to even take it further back than that. I'm going to take it to the week before yeah. because that lead week, I just, like I said, I didn't know until 70.3 worlds, how fit I was at that week leading into Kona it dawned on me is like, I am the, in the best shape of my life. Like I was doing workouts. I was just like effortlessly doing time or making times or like hitting power and speeds in the pool that I'd never like seen before. So I knew like I was like, it was game on. So I had this, I was quietly confident going into the race. I'm like, I think I can do better than last year. I think I can get on the podium again and, and possibly win this race. But I never was at the point where I'm going to win this race. I respect my competition enough to, to think that. So for me, I was like, I'm, good and I'm in good enough shape to win this race. I just got to pull it off. And yeah, I was confident. I don't know what reason. Everyone gets in the water super early. I'm literally on the beach waiting until five minutes before the race starts. So I get in the water really late. And I was just like having fun. Like I was just like really happy to be on the start. And I was really happy to be racing. Definitely nervous, but not nervous in a bad way. More excitement, nerves, like let's get this show on the road sort of thing. Because I just knew I want to like see what this body has to give. I want to be able to show what I feel and get the reward for how I feel and for all the training that I end up doing to get to this place where I'm like feeling in the best shape of my life. And so I go through the swim and I kind of, I can't remember, maybe came out of the water in the top three or four as a girls. And organically, there's like always a, a group of girls who swim similar. So we come out the water, get on the bike. We're all riding. Maybe there was like four or five of us. I remember Meredith Kessler crashed. Carolyn Stefan got an early penalty. So there was Mary Beth Alice and myself climbing up to Harvey together like the cameras were on me, the helicopters were on me. It was kind of cool. This is literally what I'm thinking in my head. I'm talking to the guys on the motorbike, the referees there. I think it's called the pig pen where all the media, they sit in this truck and they're all taking photos. Like I'm waving away. Like I'm having <laughs> such a fun time racing. And then on the way down, so actually Carolyn Stephan actually caught us up after her penalty. So she catches us around like the turn up in Harvey. And on the way down, she blows past both Mary Beth Alice and myself, we go with her, of course. Then going down Harvey, I go to pass Caroline Stefan and I like get right up to her and then I realize I've got no more gears left and I can't get past her. <laughs> and so I actually have to slip back and that's actually a penalty. You're not allowed to do that. I got Meaning a penalty. you're not allowed to try to pass and then fail passing. Yeah, correct? you have to commit yeah. to the pass. Like you have to get past that person. So I couldn't do it. I end up getting a penalty for that. So I had to, at the bottom of, I think it was actually on the way back along the Queen K, I think it was at Waikoloa, there's a penalty tent there and I sit in the penalty tent. I actually see in the penalty tent Sam McGlone, 
her and I, we both raced Kona for the first time. That was our, both of our first Ironman. So we're like reminiscing like of past times together. She, she's <laughs> retired now. And when I saw her in the tent, she'd already retired. So we were like having a little chat because I had four minutes to kill. Uh, and then I get back on my bike and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll, you know, third place isn't bad. I'll run into third. Let's see if I can hold that. I get into the transition go out for the run and then it was so bizarre I was like huh Mary Beth Ellis is coming out with me this is weird so she ended up getting a penalty as well so Carolyn Stefan already out in the run course she had a penalty Mary Beth Ellis had a penalty her and I now running together I also had a penalty so it was quite bizarre that the three first girls off onto the run we all had penalties at different points right yeah so that's so, on an even playing field at this point. Yeah, exactly. So we're all, like Mary Beth and I are running together. I'm feeling pretty good. And I just kept like winding up, winding up, feeling stronger and stronger. So Mary Beth, she started, you know, fading. And so now I'm in second. I was like, this is good. This is better than last year. Let's just hold on to second. And so I'm running along Queen K. I think we're at mile like maybe uh, 15, something like that at this point. And all the like helicopter comes up and the motorbikes and I'm like, Oh, this is great. More attention getting on TV. (laughs) And then they like kind of fade again. I was like, Oh, that's bizarre. And I get down in the energy lab. I get to now see how far ahead Carolyn Stefan is. I'm like, wow, she's definitely not as far ahead as she was like at the beginning of the, the first out and back, which is the long Alihi drive. So I'm like, maybe I'm, I'm gaining on her and I'm still feeling really good. And I come out of the energy lab and I actually get to see the split. I think at the po- that point I was a minute and a half behind her and I was like, wow. okay, so I know I've did, I did this run so many times in training. I knew exactly from exit of the energy lab back to town or the finish is about six miles. So I was like, I just got to like really just push and get maybe 10, 15 seconds a mile up my sleeve and I could catch it by the finish. So I just went up a gear. Because I'm feeling, still feeling really strong, really good. And a couple of miles past the exit of the energy lab, I can see her like she's in striking distance. She's maybe two or 300 yards ahead of me. And I see she stops at a, an aid station. And instead of like just taking a cup of water, she just grabs a bottle and dumps the whole thing over her. And I'm like, gosh, she's hurting. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm still feeling really good. Uh, but I'm like, that's a bloody good idea. I'm going to do exactly the same thing. So I grab my water, one of the water bottles, dump the whole thing over my head. I'm like, all right, game on. I'm going to like catch this girl. I'm going to pass her. So it was probably, I want to say maybe three miles to the finish. I'm just coming up on her and I don't, I'm, I'm sure she could feel it. There's like motorbikes around, helicopter again. And I did, I was just like, I got to pass her and I got to like do it with conviction i've got to make sure she can see that i'm faster fitter and stronger and feeling better than she is so i went past her as fast as i could which kind of hurt a lot <laughs> but then i was like god i have to stay at this pace like what if she tries to come with me so then i'm like i just have to stay at this pace now for three miles all the way to the finish line and and i did do, do and, you know what pace you were running at that point when you just passed her no but i th- I think my marathon time that day was three hours and five minutes. So I think it was Jeez. probably close to 6.45 pace at that point. Good Lord. Yeah. I know. I can't even run that fast now. <laughs> <laughs> I just, so I just kept like 
the throttle going. I just went all the way to the finish line at that pace. And honestly, if I hadn't, she probably would have come up on me. I think I finished a minute and a half ahead of her in the end. And it was bittersweet because like in three miles, like she lost the glory of winning Kona and I took the glory. But at the same time, that's competition. I, I was passed so many times by someone in the last few miles of a race my, with my weapon being my bike. I was always being caught on the run. Oh my gosh, finally, I've been able to win a race with a run leg, not just rely on, on a solid bike. But yeah, the win was amazing. There's nothing that can explain like how it feels coming down the finishing chute and first with all the people watching and the music. And yeah, that memory is like, cemented in my brain forever yeah yeah it's pretty special i've done one race and wasn't even close to winning and i remember just crossing that finish line and it was such an amazing experience just one finishing a race like that but two realizing what you've done but i can't can't even imagine you're probably 100 correct in this in the sense that there are no words to describe that but i can just imagine with all the, like you said all the, all the people the crowd the finish line and being able to do what you've done come from behind make up that amount of time in the last six miles, that, that's huge. When you cross the finish line, did you realize at the time that you were the first woman, really only second person ever in the triathlon community to have completed the double? No, I mean, for me, I was so focused on the, the win and the fact that I'd won because was, it was still blowing my mind because it's like an out-of-body experience. You're not present in a way. Like you're just pushing and pushing and then like it does, it dawns on you so much later. I'm over the finish line. I know I've won, but then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like now I just won this thing. Like I realized how big a deal it was, the, the scope of what I've finally been able to achieve. I've finally done something that I've been trying to do for so long and I pulled it off. Like it was, so for me, it was just like digesting all that and just kind of taking all that in before I even like, and I didn't even know at this point what the statistics were or like yeah. the history. Like I had no clue. It wasn't until much later that I, that was like a, a, a thing <laughs> to yeah. win the double. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and the double that being, as we mentioned before, was winning the 70.3 world championship and the Ironman world championship at Kona in the same calendar year. Why do you think that that's such a hard thing to do? And why, why have so few people been able to do it? I think that question is more because the 70.3 distance has become a distance in itself where athletes have specialized in that particular distance and not considered racing Ironman. So you've got a lot of athletes who just train and race for the 70.3 distance. They're, they're not even, they've never done an Ironman. They don't plan maybe on ever doing an Ironman. They just, that is their main goal. And so a lot of the athletes who are racing and winning the 70.3 and achieving really good results in that that distance, you don't see them in Ironman, but they're going to win. So the difference is it's harder to win both because the specialists of the 70.3 distance are so good at what they do that they're the ones winning normally, the 70.3 distance. And there's very few who can be at that level in the 70.3 distance because, like I said earlier, it is faster than the Ironman. And those athletes don't do the Ironman. They just stick to that 70.3. And the Ironman is essentially like a slower race because it's much longer. And it, it does take a different type of training. It does take a different type of athlete to win the Ironman. That's kind of what it comes down to in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, again, super impressive. Five weeks apart being able to do, 
you know, what you've done. And would you consider that sort of a year, especially when it culminates with winning the Ironman? Is that probably the, the peak or highlight of your career, you think? Winning the double or winning the Ironman? Either. I would just say winning the Ironman because yeah. it was hard. It, was, it took so long and it was just such a mystery almost for so many years until I got it, right? And, and it hurt. It's, it's a hard distance. I remember after my first one, I mean, I couldn't walk for two weeks. It was like it hurt. My body was messed up. And it, it, that distance, it, I don't think your body's meant to do that much <laughs> racing in one go. But, you know, we, we're always pushing the, the limits and the boundaries with endurance sports. As I sit here and like I'm going to do Ultraman this year, even longer, it's an unhealthy distance and it hurts. The training hurts. Everything's like an extreme and there's meltdowns as highs as it to get to that win took a lot like not just physically but also emotionally and that's why I feel like it was such a big deal for me that's an amazing experience kind of going through that and watching and reading and researching about that, that experience and career for you has been amazing if that's kind of the highlight what would you say is probably the, the low point of your experience as a triathlete in terms of racing Oh, you know, I would actually say the following year after I won, I, I was on such a high. I just had the best race of my career. It came too easy. I was just having so much fun. And I was enjoying it. And that's the reason why it felt easy. Like it wasn't a chore. And then I got injured and I tore my hamstring, my left hamstring. And I'd just gone from being on such a high to such a low. And I, I couldn't train. I was trying to race. I was doing all this stuff for media, for sponsors, traveling all over the world to do appearances and all this stuff instead of getting my injury sorted out. Mm -hmm. So I went pretty much a year training and racing on a torn hamstring. Wow. And I even raced the Ironman in 2013 on this torn hamstring. I had a cortisone injection, hoping for the best. And... I'm not gonna have a good race. I think I ended up 13th. It was horrible and it was agonizing. And yeah, after that, like I, that year was literally one of the worst. I went such a high from two world championships in 2012 to such a low where I couldn't even get on the podium in a race. I couldn't yeah. even like train optimally. I was hurting all the time, breaking down, crying. It was just, I was just always in pain. So there, that would, I would say, be the lowest. Yeah, that, that's a pretty big contrast. When you look at that hamstring injury, how did that occur? And was it like a hamstring muscle or was it a tendon? Or tell us a little bit more exactly about that injury. So it was the upper hamstring tear that was at the top of my dimmer. Okay. You probably know the name of that because I don't. Um, yeah. I want to say like tuberosity. Yep. Yeah, yep. From your, probably from your ischial tuberosity. Yeah. Yep. So it was a micro tear. It wasn't huge doesn't need to be huge, still hurt like hell. Yeah. And the cause was pushing too big a gear on the bike. And it actually came over time. It was, I think after Kona, I just let my hair down, didn't really take care of my body, didn't do all the good things to my body that I should, like spending time, like stretching and massage and all that. I just checked out and just took time off the sport without doing any like maintenance in between. And got back into training again, just pushing the big gears. I was climbing. I was actually in Australia at the time. I was climbing a, a mountain in my big chain ring. <laughs> and I just felt something and it didn't feel right. And it was like a twinge. And I got yeah. back and I was like, oh, I've got a tight hamstring now. 
That's what I thought it was. And I kept thinking it was a tight hamstring for the longest time, which was stupid. Um, and I never got it looked at. I'm like, this is, this will be fine. I just, it'll like, I've had things like that before. They, they go over time. I'll take ibuprofen or whatever. And it didn't go, it got worse. And by the time I got back to the States, I'd already, I was already scheduled to do a bunch of appearances and then a race here and there and all this stuff. And I was just like, yeah, the last thing I was thinking about was trying to sort this injury out, still thinking, oh, it's just a tight hamstring, it'll go. But maybe three or four months in, I'm like, this isn't good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When did you first uh, realize that it was torn? Oh, when I finally got an MRI, probably. So it happened in, in February of 2013. I think I got my MRI in August or September. So that's how long. Yeah, that's when that's, I finally got diagnosed. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and during that time, obviously with Kona coming up a couple months later, you obviously made the choice to push through and try to treat it conservatively with you know an injection. After you finished that season, realizing it was kind of a disappointment given everything you'd been dealing with, what did you end up finally doing about that injury? Did you end up having surgery? Did you just kind of do the right PT? What did you do to get, get through that? So I saw a few different people. One wanted to rip me open and, and sew me up again. So that's obviously the last resort. He was talking about severing it and then reattaching. I was like, oh God, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I could deal with that. So with some research, I found someone here in Miami, Lee Kaplan. He's one of the best sports doctors in the country that I researched and found. So I came here and I saw him and he's like, you need to try PRP. Oh, yeah. Platelet rich, rich plasma. That's, right. that's, what, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Platelet rich plasma. Exactly. They draw blood, they spin it and then they re-inject the platelets. Right? Yeah. So no, yeah. yeah, you're hundred percent correct. And so just as a background with that, that's been around for a while and by spinning it down and taking a bunch of different blood cells in your blood, some are red blood cells, which carry oxygen. Some are white blood cells, which fight infection. And then platelets, their main focus is to create a blood clot when appropriate. So if you have a cut on your hand, platelets clump together and create a clot. But in doing so, they also have a lot of growth factors. And so this was identified years back that if you take the, that little platelet layer and you can isolate that by, like you said, spinning down the blood and the platelets will separate from the white blood cells and red blood cells based on how heavy they are when you spin them. You can select just that layer, and because the platelets have such a good healing capacity and have they produce a lot of kind of healing factors and growth factors, the thought is that when you inject that into a tendon that's not healthy or some, some area that's injured, that can help with the healing. Yeah, and it did. Yeah. <laughs> and rehab and taking time off. So I had that injection in December 2013. I was instructed only walk if necessary the four weeks after mm -hmm. your therapy. And then I could start doing some light spinning on the bike and light elliptical, still no running. I was doing a lot of rehab after eight weeks here in Miami at the sports medicine clinic. And by, I want to say like after two months, I was running again and pretty much totally healed. The thing is, I, I was in pain for so long, I thought I was always going to be in pain. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not in pain anymore. Like, there's no pain. It's, it was such an amazing feeling. I was like, I don't care if I never race again. 
if I'm not, if I'm, if I ever have to put up with that sort of pain again, I don't think I could, I could ever do the sport again. And thankfully I, I never have had an issue since, right? I think maintaining a good body with the right strength and mobility and everything helps, but I was, I've never been in that pain ever again. That was like huge. And the fact that I did get back into racing and I could continue my career was, was you know, a bonus. Yeah. And, and when you look at the time frame from the injection in December, you know, eight weeks of physio and then kind of back to full go, you said about what a month and a half, two months after that. I mean, you're looking three to four months, whereas you're right. And as a surgeon who does that surgery, you know, the time frame for getting back to full go after a, you know, hamstring tendon repair, like was suggested, you know, it's definitely a longer recovery. And, you know, PRP is one of those things that is, is thrown around a lot. But I think in these cases in particular is where it can be very beneficial when you're talking about a tendon problem. So if you have a partial tear of a tendon or a tendon, you know, strain that's been, you know, lingering, you are clear evidence of that being a very good use and actually accelerating the ability to recover from an injury like that without surgery. And so we'll suggest that as well here. And I think that that's such a huge testament to not only the proper rehab and taking time off and doing the right things, but these other modalities that we have, what we call orthobiologics, that can really help not only recovery, but also save a career and save your daily activities. It's a cool story to hear that you went through that and were able to take something that plagued you for an entire season and then come back. Because later that year in 2014, you ended up winning Ironman Sweden, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I came back and I came back strong. Yeah. Unfortunately, I never had a significant result again in Kona, which for reasons I <laughs> crashing my bike was one of them, but I felt like I did have a very good career post injury. Like yeah. once I recovered. Yeah. What happened with that crash in Kona? I felt like I was in, even in better shape than when I won in 2012. I just uh, was too relaxed. I want to say on the bike and I wasn't really holding on hard to my handlebars. I just had, I was just softly holding onto them mm -hmm. and I hit like a bump in the road and I literally bounced off my handlebars and came crashing down. You DNF that race because that crash, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The crash was pretty bad. I was actually at full race speed. So I was probably at the time, maybe 23, 24 miles an hour. Yeah. And I, I came down pretty hard. I was scarred up. What happened was I went over my handlebars and the, with the TT bikes, you have these bar ends and one of the bar ends went into my gut and it caused some significant bruising. I got back on the bike to to continue and to finish the race. But at some point that bruising started to swell uh, to the point where I, I couldn't even put, you know, my pedal around. It was, I was kind of in a place where I wasn't able to ride anymore. Yeah. And it was pretty devastating actually, because that was going to be my swan song. I was going to go out. I was going to retire after that. And then after that crashing, I was like, oh, I can't retire now to keep it was going. A crash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was probably more depressing than the crash itself. <laughs> Aside from a deep bruise, Fortunately, there was nothing else that was wrong. You didn't have any internal bleeding or anything like that from that? No, I had some concussion. I hit okay. my head pretty hard as well, but no internal bleeding, just like this like bruise on my, my um, abdomen yeah. and where the bars were and just some pain for about a week, but nothing internal, no. Yeah. You know, aside from the hamstring tear, that injury, were there any other sort of injuries that you suffered throughout your career that really held you out for a long period of time? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> that's that's, that's the, the the briefing of a professional athlete or the, <laughs> the job description it's in there injuries yeah, yeah i had a lot I, I through early in my career i had a lot of stress fractures before i went professional i was suffering from one stress fracture after the next i had 13 diagnosed stress fractures um, 13 wow 
yeah, uh, 12 in my shins and one in my femur. And then later I had hamstring back issue, which honestly I want to say, so this was after I won my first world title, almost exactly the same thing. I won my first world title, took some time off, had some fun, went back into training, probably too hard, too soon, did something. And I, I never got this diagnosed either. But when I reflect now, back to that pain I had back then, very similar to the pain which I experienced with this hamstring tear, that kind of plagued me for again for a year until I, I didn't do any PRP or anything back then. I just had yeah. to stop and I was only doing Olympic distance. The volume of training I was doing wasn't damaging my body as much. So I managed to get over that injury months and months later and come back again, obviously, after that. So those, yeah, I also crashed my bike once in a ITU race in Mexico where a girl crashed in front of me, took a whole bunch of girls down and I was the last one. I went over the top of them all and I broke both my wrists, both my elbows and my jaw in this crash. Oh, wow. Uh, so that was a bit of a nasty one. Yeah. Um, I've crashed my bike a lot. I still crash my bike a lot. Uh, in the last year, I've crashed it three times. Oh, geez. You, you're just <laughs> um, recovering. I, th- I thought I saw on your Instagram or social media that uh, your most recent one, you actually had a fracture. Is that right, too? Another one? Yeah, I, I was actually hit by a car door. I trained some athletes here in Miami, and I was out with a client, almost finished, and we're riding back in the bike lane pretty slowly. And this car had parked in the bike lane, and... Right as I passed his door, he swung it open so fast. I had zero time to react and I was right there. And yeah, I came down with a thud and I thought I was okay. I got up and I was like, oh, this is great. Nothing's broken. And then the ambulance is there, the police are there. And as I, you know, I'm waiting around, I'm like, oh, my hip's feeling kind of sore. I think I've just maybe torn a little muscle or strained a muscle or something. And you know, as the day wore on, it got more and more painful. And then I went to see sports doctor, same sports doctor's clinic when yeah. <laughs> back when I had the hamstring tear. Went in there and the doctor, Dr. Best is his name, gave me, he also works with Lee Kaplan. He gave me an, an x-ray and sure enough, I had a, a little fracture in my, my pelvis. So wow. that was unfortunate. And yeah, I just signed up for Ultraman right before this accident. Oh, so, <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is terrible timing. Yeah, delay um, that just a little bit, huh? Well, I'm not. I can't. And so I'm just plugging away now trying to not get fit quick because I've learned my lesson there, but, you know, try to do what I can to at least get to the start line and get through the qualifying race in July um, as best I can so I can do the world champs in, in November. That's awesome. With any of these injuries, did you ever require surgery? No, that's no, very fortunate. Been pretty lucky. Yeah. yeah. So with that, if you think about kind of dealing with injuries, you know, what role do, as you mentioned, sports medicine surgeons or doctors and, you know, therapists and chiros, how much of a role have they had in your ability to get through all of this? And then also go back to this idea that when you talk about endurance athletes and especially female endurance athletes with all the stress fractures you had early in your career, did you learn anything going through that about treating those from a sports medicine standpoint? that you modified how you approach things later on in your career? Yeah, early on, all those stress fractures were caused for a reason, right? I had poor running form. So the key to not getting those again was to change my running technique. And 
it was also the only way to progress as an athlete. I couldn't keep having time off every two to three months because I got another stress fracture. So I needed to have consistent training. And the only way to do that was to like fix my running technique. There was no two ways about it. I started working with Nicholas Romanoff. He's invented the pose method and I started working with him and made a huge difference to my running form and my running technique helped me reduce all the impact that I was putting into my body from um, overstriding and landing on my heel and all those sorts of things. And that made a huge difference for my running. So that was, I took care of that. The thing is like with my hamstring tear and a lot of others, I saw a sports specialist, sports doctor too late in the game. And if I could make any suggestion to people like, do that earlier than later, sooner than later. Don't delay just thinking that, oh, it's a tight this or it's a sore that. It's, it's typically something that lasts longer than like two or three weeks, needs addressing, and you can't mask things with painkillers and things like that. You have to get someone to look at it. And for me, it was a big wake-up call when I finally got attention and I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't seek the proper sports doctor early on I had my coach telling me to go see a chiropractor to go see a massage therapist to go see people who weren't qualified to diagnose me telling me that they can fix me and in the end it wasn't about anyone fixing me I had to like do the right thing see a see a sports doctor get diagnosis and and follow the procedure and get healed properly yeah I think part of that mentality is as a professional athlete, especially as an endurance athlete, this idea that your whole ability to be successful racing is being able to endure pain. And so this is just a different version of it. But when it's not pain that you're putting on yourself in a race, it's a little bit different. And we work with a lot of athletes here and I work with many endurance athletes as well. And it's one of those things where you're right. I think that endurance athletes tend to let things linger for longer than they should. And I think part of it is because a lot of the injuries are not necessarily like it's an ACL. When you tear your ACL, it's a big sort of event these tend to be a little bit more kind of come on slower, linger for a while and just never go away. And so I think it's hard to kind of come to that realization of, wait a sec, maybe I should get this looked at. But I think you're right. That's a a good piece of advice to anyone doing, you know, whether it's recreational or at a higher level, if something lasts longer than two to three weeks and you continue to struggle with it, probably should get it looked at. Yeah. I would also say that the psychology of an injury for an athlete is we're in denial. <laughs> we're lots at stake when we get injured. So we want to, we don't want to admit that we're injured and we try and hide it. We try and push it under the rug for a long time before we're like, okay, yeah, this is legit. I got to figure this out. And, and I think like sports doctors kind of scare athletes a lot. Like doctors in general scare people. They, they're just afraid of the truth, hearing what we don't want to hear. And I think that definitely played a lot into my injury as well. I think that is an interesting point that you make um, in terms of this idea from an athlete perspective. The doctor is almost a source of fear because the truth of a potential injury and taking out of what you want to do is more than you want to have to handle. Is there any way or any doctor that you've worked with that helped you kind of get through that? Or is that something personally an athlete has to kind of just get over no, an athlete has to get over it. What I've learned from my experience with sports doctors is like their job is to get us back to back up and running as soon as possible, right? Like yeah. a typical doctor, and that's the difference, like a doctor, a general GP or surgeon who doesn't specialize in sports medicine, they don't understand the need for an athlete to get back 
up and running. So they're always probably being super cautious with recovery time, with like surgery, with all those sorts of things. Whereas like a sports doctor is like, no, this is like something we can get over in this amount of time and do it this way. And I think there's just a level of trust that athletes have to put into um, sports doctors as opposed to um, general physicians and general surgeons. And so for me, when I got hit by this car, I was like the first person I saw was a sports doctor. I wouldn't go and see, go to the hospital and go to the emergency room. I went to, you know, sports medicine instead (laughs) because like that guy knows like what it means, what he knows what it means for an athlete to be injured. and, And he can also empathize with an athlete that way. And, understand that that the mentality of that psychology of what we're going through and and I think just nursing an athlete through that too is important which a general surgeon or doctor would not be able to do it's unrelatable they can't can't come to that level of an athlete they don't understand this athlete now can't do anything for eight weeks (laughs) yeah I think that's a great point that you make in terms of just the approach to rehab whether it's surgical or non-surgical being able to empathize and really realizing that as sports medicine physicians and surgeons, you're right. Our, our goal is we're not here to hold you out. Our goal is to do everything we can to get you back as quickly as possible in a safe way. And I think that's what I've you know learned a lot since I you know moved down to Birmingham and when I was a fellow here. And like you said, a lot of the training initially is, okay, well, we can fix something, but this whole idea of once it's fixed or once you've you know started those things in motion, there's a process and there's a way to speed that process up safely. And you're right. As an athlete, you have to find a sports medicine physician that you trust who is also going to push the envelope a little bit in a safe way. So as not to compromise your ability to return, but actually to, you know, accelerate that and and facilitate that as quick as possible. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the things down here we do. I know Dr. Kaplan down in Miami, University of Miami does that very well. We've uh, sent patients down there and and vice versa. And I've had, you know, other, you know, friends uh, who are high-level athletes also have gone to him. So that sort of mentality is unique, but it's it's definitely needed for you know athletes of, of your level and caliber for sure. Yeah. Interesting enough, this idea of once you kind of have these highs and lows, did you ever have a, an issue from an emotional standpoint of dealing with the highs and lows of racing or as you got towards the end of your career when you raced in terms of stuff like where you're just feeling down or depressed or anxious? Did you ever have any issues like that? Yeah. Career-wise, always had was an emotional roller coaster. The tail end of my career, I was... I mean, I'd wanted to retire for a while. I didn't for a number of reasons, but I want to say just I hadn't really set myself up for what I was going to be doing next or after. I was earning a decent income through what I was doing as an athlete. And if I'd stopped when I that idea of retiring came into my head, I wouldn't have had something to fall back on. I wouldn't have had any income stream. So when the idea of retiring and I was kind of toying with it. I was like, okay, but I need to have an exit strategy. I can't just retire next year. I have to start planning like retirement because I need to have income or else like I can't live. So my manager at the time, he helped me start up my coaching business. And I slowly grew that in the last, I want to say five years of my racing career. And when I finally did retire, I had a little bit of income coming in, decent income coming in through coaching. So I felt comfortable about uh, my retirement. And so that's kind of like that last few years of my career. I was still racing really well. I was still training really well. But what I did feel I was 
noticing was my ability to perform was not as good as what it once was and it was getting on. I, I was, by the time I retired, I was 40 and I want to say by 37, 38, like I wasn't winning, winning races as often. I wasn't even getting on the podium as often. And for me as an athlete, almost at the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about like your, my competitiveness. That's what I had in me, this competitor. I wanted to win. I liked the blue ribbon. And as I was winning races less often, and that's where I got a lot of my satisfaction and joy from the sport, I, was, I realized like I'm not having as much fun and I'm finding it frustrating and I'm training just as hard and I can't go as fast as I want to go. And I, I would just have said that up to that point, my body was giving me and doing everything I asked of it. But towards the end of my career, it wasn't, which is natural with age. And I just felt like it was time to like really make that decision and hang up the racing flats. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, if you think about just the longevity of a career of a professional athlete, I mean, age 40 is fantastic, especially competing at the level you did and putting up the times that you did. I mean, that's 18 years of hard racing year, year in and year out and doing multiple races a year. How can you describe the whole physical and emotional by the time you got to the twilight of your career from a professional triathlete standpoint, what did you feel differently at that time at 37, 38, 39 compared to 10 years prior that you you were like, wait, this is way different. How I feel, how emotionally and physically, what, what were the things that you could really point to? I just wanted, I wanted just to sleep more. I wanted to like not have to get up to an alarm. I, I used to be so excited about getting out of bed to do a workout and it, it just became a chore. I want to say again, like it, it comes to what getting out of bed meant when I was getting out of bed and racing, winning, like that kept driving my, my motivation and my enthusiasm um, and excitement to do the sport. But then as I'm getting out of bed and doing all the hard training, putting, putting in all the hours, and by the way, I trained 90% of those hours on my own. Um, it, it just like wears on you when you're not getting the results. And I'm like, when you're training alone, it's a lonely place to be in your head all this time. And yeah, like trying to talk yourself, motivate yourself along the way. And I guess in the end, like that was just, for me, it was just like the, the not winning, the not achieving what I wanted to, to achieve. And I guess I started losing the, the motivation and, and I wanted sleep. <laughs> I wanted to stop waking up to an alarm. It's funny when I finally did retire, I said, I'm not putting on an alarm ever again, which was fine when I was in Colorado. Then I moved back here with my fiance and, we're starting to coach now and athletes want to train early yeah. and here I am again, alarm four, four thirty, five in the morning to, to get up at, you know, the crack of dawn before it's, it's daylight. Yeah. I'm getting no sleep again. <laughs> <laughs> kind of well, ironic. <laughs> you know, at least it's a little bit more of your coaching. Hopefully someone else is there. So it's no longer just you solo anymore. Right. Yeah. No, we've got a good thing. We're just in the, we're just in its infancy, but yeah, the, it's called Club Leander K. We started it here in Miami and we're, yeah, we're getting, it's exciting. It's fun. I, I enjoy like the one-on-one coaching. I enjoy like the, taking athletes out and, and now with the club, we're getting groups of athletes together. And I, I enjoy that. I, I've been coaching online, like I'd said, for oh, maybe six, seven years now. I enjoy the personal approach to coaching much more than the online approach to coaching and online coaching is convenient, especially if you're in a place where you, you want the best coach, but you can't be with them personally. And that's essentially what I cater 
for, but yeah, I feel like I, I have more to give in person. Like when I see an athlete swim, there's technical stuff I can offer. When I see them run again, more technical stuff I can offer because I've learned all these things through my career. I can't offer that through a, an online process. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I love this sort of coaching. And are you coaching all different levels, different lengths, distances as well? Yeah. I think just naturally people consider me a long distance coach, but I have professional Olympic distance um, athlete. I coach, actually she's moving up to the half Ironman distance anyway, but yeah, I've coached from beginners. Some athletes are, they haven't even done an Ironman and I'm coaching them for their first Ironman. So that's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. I have to try and pretend I'm, I'm excited for them. As I remember the day I did my first Ironman. Yeah. So yeah, I have to be excited for them, but also not tell them what they're in for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gotta, gotta have a little bit of a level of kind of mystery. So they yeah. don't run away. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So retirement transition to coach and still obviously very involved in triathlon. Are you involved in anything else or anything else peak your fancy after the initial part of your retirement? Yeah, I did start working with a coaching app called Peakers. Funnily enough, you just said peak my... Um. Yeah. That was unintentional, <laughs> yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah I know. So that, it's a called Peakers. It's a, it's a coaching app. So I'm the head coach for the coaching app. So I work for them. It's actually based out of LA. So I've been with them for four years now or five okay. years. And yeah, I have my own coaching company. I've been involved with Credo. It's a motivational app for currently triathletes, which is awesome. If you look today on Instagram, Craig Alexander's one of the athletes on it, which is Super Bowl. I'm also, well, now with my fiance, Michael, we have the club, Club Leander Cave. I hate calling a club my own name. People get it. Yeah. It's weird for me. Well, still. And when you're a world champion, I mean, you kind of have to put the name out there. That's, that's, that's part of the appeal. Yeah, it's still a little weird for me. Then also I'm working with a, another former pro on a nutrition product. It's a protein recovery product. And that's about all I can say right now about it because yeah. we're still in um, the process of formulating it. And But yeah, hopefully that'll, oh, it's a long process. Let me just say, it seems yeah. sometimes like it's just a backseat. We're just waiting for the formulation to come together. But yeah, so that's another project. I get my toes wet all doing all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah that's what it and sounds now, like. That's awesome. Yeah, and training for Ultraman. So I'm quite busy. Yeah. Ultraman, is that is that triathlon as well? Yeah, so that's over three days. The day one is a 10K swim followed by a 90-mile bike ride. Day two is a 170-mile bike ride. And day three is a 52-mile run. Now, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, the 52-mile run, that's got me a little um, worried. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But, what prompted the, the jump to this ultra Ironman sort of situation? <laughs> okay, so my fiance mentioned that he wanted to do it one day. And I was like, oh, hell no, I'm never doing that. That's ridiculous. And then he was talking to one of his friends who does that event. And his friends, oh, it would be great if I could get Leander... In, I think he was doing like a, a documentary and landed in this documentary. I think the documentary is about being a keto athlete. And I was like, oh, cool. So they got talking. And then I think that just planted the seed. Michael and I were talking and it's like, you, wouldn't it be great if you did all, the Ultraman and won and that would be like another world title? And, huh. and the competitive ears prick up on me and I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I could win. I could get another world title. So then we're like, oh, that'd be amazing. Five world titles. 
in triathlon. So yeah, so that's where it all stems from. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, good luck with that. I know that's coming up. You said in July, is that what it is? That's the qualifier. Yep. So okay. I have that distance to do in July. And then once I complete it, that'll qualify me, fingers crossed, for Kona, yeah. which is in November. Okay. All right. That sounds awesome. We'll have to keep an eye on that. I can't believe that there's more races that are harder and longer than the Ironman, but yeah, um, me neither. I'm sure, there are. Um, <laughs> I wish they were. <laughs> briefly, you mentioned this idea of being a keto athlete. Are you a keto when you no, when you race? No, I'm not. I'm not okay. at all. I eat everything. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. I was gonna, that was going to be interesting. That's you know, there, there's been a lot of talk about that in different spheres. I think the professional cycling sphere, and I think that the, the concern was is if you have to exert a little bit more energy than just the baseline sort of output, that may not be as adaptable uh, at that sort of high level. And it's hard to convert because when you get rid of all carbs, you really kind of limit your energy stores to be able to do that. So I thought it was going to be interesting if, if that was answer was yes, but that it's not, a, you know, everything I think that, that's helpful, especially for an endurance type of career. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I could. I, yeah. I love carbs too much. Yeah. I'm a bread eater. Yeah. I feel you. <laughs> well, cool. A couple last quick questions for you. I read here that you have a special move that you've developed crossing the finish line. They call the, is it the Blazeman roll? Blazeman roll. Yeah. So way back, actually that was at my first 70.3 back then it wasn't even called 70.3. It was called the half Ironman. And I wasn't even doing Kona at this point, but this was where Sam McGlone, who I mentioned in the penalty tent and myself, we were doing this half Ironman world champs in Clearwater, Florida to qualify for Kona. And they had the awards after the race. They did this kind of dedication to, to the Blazeman Foundation. And he was actually still alive. And I met him. And his name is John Blaze, by the way. So I met him and his parents, Bob and, and Marianne. And we stayed in touch. And then I, when I heard that John had passed, it really touched my heart. And I reached out to them and they said, well, we have this foundation. We'd love you'd be part. And I said, sure. And, and I said, I'd love to help raise money. And so I actually raised, I think $15,000 that year for the Blazeman Foundation. And I also added the Blazeman role to the finish line when I was racing and not every finish line, but some finish lines, I, I did the Blazeman role and I did it actually in Kona when I won. Did you really? Yeah. So I That's finished, awesome. I did the, the whole hurrah and then I went back over the finish line and rolled afterwards. Yeah. But yeah, so I supported them for the you know, whole time I was racing as a professional athlete. And in fact, Chrissy Wellington supported them, Dita Grishbauer, a whole bunch of athletes were helping to raise awareness for ALS and also raise money for the Blazeman Foundation. That's awesome. Can you describe, because I've seen a picture of it, but can you describe what the actual role and what that move is? So John Blaze, when his dad took him over the course in Kona, he just wanted to get over the finish line and make it significant. And he said, I just want to get over the finish line, even if I have to roll. So when he got to the finish line, he rolled. So that became the Blazeman roll. Got it. Okay. By basically you doing that afterwards, that was kind of homage to that experience. Yeah. And, and yeah. everyone who supported the Blazeman Foundation or still does, they do the role over the, the finish line in that's, honor of John Blaze. That's really special. Very, very, very cool. Very interesting. Moving on to something completely different. What's your favorite post-race meal? Oh, I love 
McDonald's. <laughs> really? I just want like, well, okay. In perspective, like yeah. after Kona, I just want something salty yeah. and crispy and juicy and dirty. I don't know. I, I love yeah. like McDonald's fries. It's always a McDonald's, you, you know, you can find a McDonald's anywhere. So yeah. it's the go-to. Yeah. So yeah, just the cheeseburger and fries. That's my thing after an Ironman and yeah. Well, especially yeah. after you've been eating, you know, goose all, you know, for nine yeah. hours, you're just looking for something salty and, you know, exactly. Like exactly. Yeah. Actually, in fact, the, the, I want to say the best post race food is actually at I'm in Arizona. They have fries, they have hot chicken soup, they have pizza, they have everything salty you can imagine. It's yeah. the best. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. I, I remember the one I did, they had ruffles, potato chips. Oh yeah. And yes. that was probably, that was still on the run. And I remember yeah. having a handful and just thought, thinking they were the, the best things in the world because at that point you're just looking for anything salty and that was, those are perfect. So yeah, I, 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 I feel you on those. They're the best things in the world, even when you're not racing. <laughs> <laughs> they are very good. I love chips. <laughs> yeah. I read somewhere also that your nickname was Superbird. Is that right? Yeah. So Where did that come from? Okay. So way back when... I was still a junior. I was living in Australia. I was doing triathlon. I started training with Brett Sutton and he would call me Big Bird because the Sesame Street character, yeah. that he gave me this nickname, Big Bird. And Siri was a disciple of Brett. She started coaching after being an athlete of Brett's for several years. And I actually used to race Siri and then I ended up getting coached by her. And so she made her own rendition of Big Bird and called me Super Bird. So that's kind of where Superbird came from. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Leander, this has been awesome. It's been very enlightening. I've really enjoyed, you know, talking with you about your career and your experience with injuries and struggle and also the high points. It's been very enlightening for me. And I think that after you and I got the chance to meet almost two years ago now, kind of when we were out in Colorado and just watching you, it was kind of a weird thing for me because here we're doing this ride with a bunch of my buddies who are all really good athletes. Here's this world champion sitting next to me. And uh, we also got to ride with Olympic triathlon specialist, Hunter, um, Hunter Kemper, who is also fantastic. We're hoping to get him on the podcast as well. But here I'm next to these two amazing athletes. And I just remember just looking at you guys and riding and you, you're barely breaking a sweat on these rides that we're kind of working hard on. And then we did the uh, triple bypass and it seemed like a lot of the ride you were hanging out and still like, we're all working our asses off. And, and then all of a sudden we're probably about, I don't know, we're got to Frisco. So we're probably 20, 25 miles out and you just took off. Like it was nothing. And I just remember looking at you like, well, that's why she's a world champion. You just got a whole nother gear. And I was just blown away. So it, it's been really a pleasure getting to know you over the last, you know, couple of years. And this has been, it was awesome. So any last uh, words of, of advice or thoughts for, for our audience here listening to you today? Don't underestimate the, quality treatment of a sports doctor. There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> we appreciate that a lot. And again, thank you so much. Uh, look forward to, uh, you know, seeing how you do over the next couple of big races with these super Ironmans or Ultramans and good luck with everything else. Thanks so much, Mike. It's great You're talking welcome. to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. On the next episode of the Victory Over Injury podcast. My guest today is one of my closest mentors and has been influential in my development as a surgeon, as both an educator and a partner at Andrew Sports Medicine. 
an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine and the surgery of the shoulder, elbow, and knee. I'm honored and excited to welcome Dr. Lyle Kane. There's only one James Andrews. What, yeah. what about him do you think allowed him to become who he is? I think he, he has a unique ability and something I've really tried to emulate over the years of being able to make the patient comfortable. You know, whether you're operating on on a high school kid or Tua Tagovailoa, you got to treat it the same way in surgery. Otherwise, you mess things up. There are a thousand things you can mess up. It's not just three or four things. There are a thousand things you can mess up from the initial incision all the way through the very end. And understanding where those are coming from and what each opportunity for a mistake is keeps you from making them. Can you describe the experience with Drew Brees and how he kind of went through that? The last game of the season had a really unusual injury where he dislocated the shoulder and towards rotator cuff in his throwing arm, which was you know, a devastating injury for a quarterback, especially an NFL quarterback. 99 out of 100 with Pete surgeons would have told him, hey, this is a bad injury. You'll probably never play football again, but we're going to try. Well, Dr. Andrews did the exact opposite. He was like, you got a bad injury, but we got a great repair on it. And so from that moment on, Drew Brees, being a real positive guy, said, I'm going to play again. I'll be fine. What was your first interaction with Coach Saban like? My first experience with him was actually an injury. He wanted to know what I was doing, what procedure, what graft, how I was doing it. I mean, he wanted to know details that no coach no had coach, ever even yeah. thought about, much less asked about. That was the first time where I realized that the book answer is not always the right answer that the norm is not always what you're dealing with. And some people either by genetics or motivation or or just mindset can, can do things quicker than you think they can. Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.